From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If you spend any time on social media, you might have seen Washington Post columnist Christine Emba's big essay earlier this summer. It's headlined, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Every so often, there's a piece about contemporary masculinity that pops up, but Christine's piece was so widely read. It made its way into a group text chain I'm on with some of my male classmates from grad school. It was all over my social media feeds for a few days and even a couple of weeks. I think it really took off because the essay takes on the challenges men face in American society today with nuance, clarity, and incredible depth. Christine really is a fabulously smart writer and reporter, which you'll know if you read any of her columns or her book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, which came out last year. I invited Christine on the show to talk about the piece. We discussed the crises men are facing, the ultra-conservative voices that have become quote-unquote manfluencers, and what she sees as key ingredients to cultivating healthier masculinity. Also, as Christine is a convert to Catholicism, I asked her what she thought about how celibate clergy in particular might model masculinity and what advice she might offer from her research to people raising or forming young men, say, at Jesuit high schools or colleges and universities. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'll leave a link to her essay and a follow-up she wrote in the show notes. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Christine Emba, welcome to AMDG. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And apologies in advance for my voice. I'm getting over a summer cold. Uh, yeah, that's always the worst in the summer. You should not be getting sick in the summer, but sounds good to me. And I also uh, wanted to congratulate you on your recent piece uh, on masculinity in the Washington Post, which really seemed like it was going everywhere, it really blew up. People were talking about it on social media friends in my group chat from theology grad school talking about it. So it seems like you struck a nerve and hit some things um, that people are really interested in. So I'm excited to dig into it. And we'll make sure that we link folks to the piece and the follow up so they can can read it for themselves. Um, so I want to start by well, let's start with the headline. I, I know writers don't often write the headlines themselves. Um, but I think this one, uh, it made me want to click on it and also nervous to read it and to talk about it. The headline is, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Now, I am nervous to talk about this topic because the word masculinity and the topic itself can feel like super touchy to get into. And you write about that in the piece, including quoting, like referring to kind of our Me Too era. The word masculinity seems to rarely appear without the description toxic accompanying it. So my question is like, why is it hard for us to talk about masculinity? What, what do you think some of the challenges are that even when that topic comes up, it's like, ooh, I wonder what that's going to be. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And it's in some ways, I think part of the reason why the piece was well received, like many of the responses that I got were a sort of, oh, I have questions about this. I've been thinking about this, but almost I was waiting for someone to say something first. Like it never seemed appropriate to bring up myself, but this is a thing that I've been thinking about. Um, and in some ways, yes, part of the piece is just about grappling with that, that difficulty, I guess. And so I have a few theories. Um, 
about why the question of masculinity is feels weird to talk about in public in some sense. I mean, number one, I think is that um, we have a, a low tolerance for for male complaint, actually. Um, and we are still working on extending our empathy in some ways towards men. Um, there's this idea that, you know, there is there is still like a, a masculine ideal, actually, I think that most people adhere to even if subconsciously. And part of it is that like men don't complain. And that also that men like generally have it good. So men who are worrying aloud about their lives or complain too much, we kind of look at askance. Um, especially I think in this moment where, you know, the feminist movement has made a lot of gains and the feminist movement has correctly in some ways identified the fact that men have been on top for a long time uh, and actually do have a lot of social power or had a lot of social power or some men have had a lot of social power. And so it feels a bit rich of them to be, to be complaining right now. Um, and I think we also have something of a zero-sum mentality when it comes to who we talk about as being deserving of help. Um, and so, especially because, you know, the feminist movement um, was still, is still pretty recent, you know, and women have made a lot of gains, but are, are still behind um, and in need of help in, in some spaces. There's almost a fear that if we turn our attention now to, oh, the problems of men, then we're just going to forget about women <laughs> uh, or we're going to forget about all of our other causes and there won't be space for them anymore. Um, and I think we should be able to hold two things in our heads at once as a society, but that is like a common problem in politics. Um, and then I think also, finally, there's something of a branding problem with masculinity. Um, you know, this piece, Men Are Lost, is about how we need to have kind of a, we need to acknowledge that there is, that men, some men are in crisis and we need to do something about that. And that also there are, you know, different sets and kinds of people or groups offering different visions of masculinity and different potential solutions to this crisis. And unfortunately, the loudest voices, or at least the voices who get the most publicity and who you hear the most of, are often not the best voices. It's like men's rights activists uh, and Andrew Tate or Bronze Age pervert. Um, people who sort of make their bread and butter, yes, talking about men, but also talking about men by disparaging women and just sort of generally being jerks about it. And so I think that even when well-meaning well people then try and have conversations about masculinity, there's sort of a fear that you'll be associated with those guys. You know, there's a like, well, if if I talk about being proud of being a man or talk about like my masculinity or manhood, is he secretly an MRA? Like, is he actually an incel? We're a little bit worried about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I think underscoring that you have a conversation with um, a grad student who has kind of mentored young undergrads. Uh, you, this guy comes up a few times in the, in the piece. And one of the questions early on is a student had asked him like, what the heck does good masculinity look like? And he says, like, I didn't have an answer for that. That in some ways, I think whether it's that we're kind of afraid to get into this or like, again, as you said, the loudest voices around masculinity are of a particular brand. 
that in some ways has just gone undiscussed, just kind of lurking there. Though at, at the same time, I think we have heard about this, like, oh, men are in a crisis. They're not doing as well as women in college or like, professionally. You write, uh, to quote, men find themselves lonely, depressed, anxious, and directionless. So I guess before we start kind of looking at voices that are responding to these questions and maybe ways out of the wilderness, can we like, could you help like in your reporting, describe like the contours of this crisis, knowing that there are a lot of different men out there, there are a lot of different challenges people are facing. Like what are things, trends that you see in terms of as you're went out to set out to describe the crisis that men are facing, what are some of those markers that you found? Yeah, I mean, so I talk about in the piece how uh, America likes to have a kind of, oh no, men are in crisis sort of thing, discourse every few decades. Um, but what's interesting about the discourse and the question right now is that there's actually data to support that men are in some sort of crisis. So, you know, if you look at deaths of despair, this term coined by Case and Deaton, um, discussing deaths of from suicide, alcohol abuse, or drug overdose. Deaths of despair are rising in America, and actually the American life expectancy is falling, which is very unusual in a developing country. Um, but three out of four deaths of despair are by men. Like women aren't really doing this. Um, when you look at educational achievement, um, and you know, college graduation, for instance, for every 100 women who receive a bachelor's degree, only 74 men do. And there is, you know, a huge number of sort of dropouts of people leaving college altogether during the COVID-19 pandemic. But actually the majority of those were young men who just kind of left um, and may not return. When you look at wages and where wages are rising or falling, wages are still, wages are stagnating for much of America, um, but they're sort of still rising for women. Um, in part because women went from not being able to be in the workforce at all to now having jobs. But for men, especially young men, wages are either stagnating or falling. Uh, and most young men make equal to or less than their you know, peers would have um, in the 70s. And when you look at men who are leaving the workforce or people who are leaving the workforce, the largest group of people who are kind of dropping out of that um, are men aged 25 to 34, like prime age working men. And then, yeah, you're seeing a spike in in suicides and violent behaviors, um, in reports of loneliness. And if you look at, you know, relationship culture and dating culture, which um, I do, my book, Rethinking Sex, is kind of about um, our sexual culture. Um, one of the things that you find reported is that men are not dating that much. Um, a higher percentage of them are single and or living with their parents uh, than women are. And when you ask women why they find it, why they're single, uh, a large percentage of them say that they're not able to find a partner who meets their standards. Like some, a man with uh, a high enough level of education or drive um, or kind of stable behavior basically to be with. So as you were like, kind of reporting this, you spoke to young men themselves, authors, therapists, professors. I'm just wondering, like, you have probably have a sense of this. Like you talk about kind of you get you have a sense of your own life that some of the men you know have are in going through difficult times. And uh, it seems like something is off. 
with a lot of people and these trends that we've seen, some of them which you've mentioned. I'm curious in your reporting, were there like things that you uncovered or heard that really kind of surprised you and maybe the reasons behind some of these crisis developments, uh, things or stories or facts that you heard that you thought, oh, that's really interesting, things you knew that you wanted to, to make sure made it into the piece? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I don't know that the, the sort of crisis of fatherlessness, like that is a topic that has been discussed in the past. You know, Barack Obama had um, his, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the, so my, my brother's, brother's keeper, keeper my brother's keeper program. Um, people have talked about this before, but the number of young men um, and people who talk to young men who mentioned not having older role models to look up to, um, not having older men in their lives who they could talk to was really surprising to me, actually. Um, so the grad student who uh, you mentioned, who I talked to, he you know, told me in, in, in his journey that he didn't have a good relationship with his father and didn't have sort of a male role model until actually, speaking of Jesuits, he his father passed away and he met a priest um, who kind of took him under his wing. And, you know, he said to me, I can I can count on, you know, the fingers of one hand, the friends of mine I know who have a good relationship with their with their dad, um, or have a good relationship with their father and or a father figure in their lives. And I was just surprised that they were so forthright about that. Like I didn't realize that was that was so core to the issue and recognized as core to the issue um, by so many young men. Yeah, I mean that really echoes, you know, the kind of the loneliness crisis too. That's going alongside with you know with this is a lot of written about that and people feeling isolated more now than in before. Mm -hmm. People having fewer friends or just really any connections. And I can tell you too, like in the church space, especially thinking about like how do we keep young Catholics from falling away? There's a big emphasis. Why don't we have any mentorship? Like you could people show up and there's there's not like that kind of mentorship at least built in. Uh, whereas when, when there are those things, those kind of intergenerational mentorship setups, like that really helps with people's faith practice. They feel connected and, and I can see that in a parallel way uh, in the piece here. Yeah, there is a lot a lot of missing community. That, that seemed really meaningful. And I think one other thing that I noticed um, that I found really interesting too was you know, you mentioned the title, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. And I didn't write the title. Uh, and I think it's a little bit aspirational. I don't know that I provided like a perfect map out of the wilderness. But I was also surprised by the number of men who are like, young men especially, who were like, yes, I want someone to tell me what to do. Please tell me what to do. <laughs> because there's, I think there's, um, and I wrote about this in a follow-up piece, there's a thread in our current conversation, I think, in sort of especially in, in elite spaces or sort of uh, modern progressive spaces where there's pushback to the idea that, that there is an ideal or that there's a certain path that you should follow. You know, one of the pushbacks that I got to this essay a lot was like, well, there's no men don't need a map. You don't have to be like an ideal man, just be a good person. And in fact, all of the young men I talked to were like, no, I don't need to know how to be a good person. That's not clear. Just tell me how to be a good man because I am male. What do I do? Hmm. And so that eagerness for clarity was um, pretty fascinating to me too. 
That, uh, for me, reminds me of a good section, big chunk of the, the, the piece toward the beginning about some of these, the voices that are stepping into this vacuum to kind of tell men what to do. You talk a lot about Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. who's a, a famous one and has admirers in, in Catholic circles, including totally. among Catholic bishops, which is, yeah, um, despite him, himself not being uh, Catholic um, and sometimes feeling like kind of outside of the Catholic moral tradition and some of the things he, he espouses and talks about. But you've mentioned one of some one of his like famous points of advice to young men, like clean your room. Like there are like right. things as straightforward <laughs> yeah. as wait, things you can do to like this is what it means. And that you went even went to an, an event of his. Maybe you could describe um, that that story of kind of going to this event, and then maybe we can get into like why is it that it's these voices that are the ones that are the the loudest right now and the, the most popular. Yeah, so I worked my way into this topic, I guess, because I've just been curious about like what's going on with men um, since maybe, I don't know, like late like 20, 2017, 2018. And in 2018, I went to um, the Washington DC stop, one of the Washington DC stops on Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life book tour. Because at that point, he was just kind of like a a guy on YouTube who had suddenly blown up and was famous, and I wanted to see what it was all about. Um, and I went with uh, a male colleague of mine who's around my age from the post, and we got there, and the audience was like at least eighty percent male, um, and the only women there seemed to be like moms who had brought their sons in hopes that they would learn something, or like long-suffering girlfriends who would come with their boyfriends. And in fact, like a lot of people thought that I was just the girlfriend of my male colleague <laughs> who I brought with me, which was not the case. Um, but I was like sitting in the audience and was just like, oh, like who is this guy? I'd read 12 Rules for Life. And it's like, this advice seems kind of banal. Make your bed. Like, okay, sure. And then this guy swung around um, who was sitting in front of me and it totally unironic was like, Jordan Peterson changed my life. It was like, oh, okay, I'll like put some respect on his name, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, then he he did his his thing, you know, he got on stage and he started the show by sort of glaring at the audience and going, who are you? Who are you really? And like the crowd ate it up um, and was fascinated. And I was just so intrigued by this phenomenon, like these young men hanging on the very, to me, obvious words of just like this older guy who's telling them stuff that I would have imagined you would learn at like your your father's or grandfather's knee. But in hindsight, maybe this is part of it, right? Like people aren't learning that at their father's or grandfather's knee or at their church or in the community spaces that they used to. And so they have to seek it out from these other people. So you talk about some of the things that they do diagnose and maybe provide some of this kind of clear father style guidance. Um, but you also talk about how like why they can be dangerous. And so could you des describe for folks who might not be familiar with Jordan Peterson or someone like Andrew Tate, who I think one of your the interview uh, interviewees in your piece says essentially is like Jordan Peterson really turned up a few notches or a bunch of notches in terms of the like the edge and the misogyny. Um, where, where do they get it wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so how would I describe Jordan Peterson in more detail? So one of the things that was interesting about him um, and that I think speaks to why he is so beloved is that he, he does have empathy. 
Like one of the things that is very clear in his books and his presentation is that he's very awake to the idea that young men are searching for something, that some young men feel lost or in crisis, and he speaks directly to that and is willing to say like, no, you're not wrong. Like, it's tough out there in some ways, um, but is also willing to say like, you're valuable and specifically you as a man are valuable, you know, speaking directly to the traits that they have. Um, and so in some ways, I think that's a good thing where I think he goes a bit off the rails and where his co-travelers who are much worse, like Andrew Tate or Bronze Age Pervert, another figure, go off the rails is that often the sort of solution or the, um, the ideal of masculinity is kind of couched in being anti-femininity um, or almost denigrating women. And so Jordan Peterson, I think, actually has a lot of useful things to say, and they're very basic, which is why they're useful. And that's why he's been taken up. Um, but more recently has sort of veered into this kind of extreme right wing content. Um, someone like Andrew Tate, who is like a guy who's became famous on TikTok. He was he's an MMA fighter and was on Big Brother um, and then was kicked off Big Brother because there was a video of him abusing a woman. Um, and now he's under house arrests or arrest in Romania for allegedly running a sex trafficking ring. Um, that speaks to kind of his character and the character that he puts on as a show of masculinity. He defines masculinity in very obvious and straightforward ways, um, but it's masculinity defined as getting a lot of money, getting a lot of hot chicks, and not caring about anyone else's opinion of you, which is actually a very sort of amoral um, way of, of going through life. And it he he paints masculinity as like a caricature sort of of manliness where the ideal man just like has big muscles and like 25 sports cars and like has sex with as many women as he wants to every day but that's actually not a very healthy vision um and it's definitely misogynistic you know and in fact he he calls himself a misogynist you know straight out um but because it's straightforward because it's so clear and because he does paint certain aspects of the male being male as aspirational as something you want to reach for like yeah you should work out you should get fit like you should be determined and you know go for your goals unfortunately his goals are bad goals <laughs> um but it still resonates and that's why people follow him I want to read to you a line that you, you had uh, in the piece, which then for me is like almost responding then. So this is where we see, okay, there's some diagnosis here maybe that we see in this movement that is, uh, they have their finger on something, but then kind of these antisocial uh, suggestions and the, what they're, again, what they propose is like what this masculinity looks like. So then you take up the question, what would creating a positive vision of masculinity look like? And you write, recognizing distinctiveness, but not patholog pathologizing it, finding new ways to valorize it and to tell a story that is appealing to young men and socially beneficial, rather than ceding ground to those who would warp a perceived difference into something ugly and destructive. And you put that question about 
a positive vision of masculinity out to your readers and you got like hundreds of replies and then in a recent follow-up you kind of took a lot of those replies and uh, kind of categorized them and quoted from some at, at length and so I'm curious for you kind of as you were thinking about it and reporting this and speaking to the experts you talked to for the piece who are working with young men and then as you were hearing from readers what are some of those traits you are seeing for like a positive vision of masculinity that maybe suggests like a slightly different way than some of these these other popular internet figures? Yeah, well, so to back up and give that a little bit of context, you know, part of the piece was about giving, if men are lost, like giving them somewhere to go. And I posit that um, people who are kind of on the right, like some of these figures, uh, Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, Tucker Carlson in some instances, um, managed to like, give a, a positive vision of masculinity. They actually identify masculinity as a thing that you should want um, and like make it very clear what steps you need to take to get it. And I worry that sort of the mainstream and progressives are kind of failing to offer anything at all. Like instead of, you know, they, they would rather say like, oh, there's not necessarily like such a thing as masculinity or actually masculinity is toxic and you should just be a good person, which is not, a very clear or positive vision of maleness. And I think in the competition between, you know, nothing or something, the something is always going to win, even if it's not that good. Um, but I think what's key to a positive vision of masculinity, at least in my understanding, if my ideal, putting together my ideal in this line that you, that you read, is first like recognizing that there is such a thing uh, as masculinity and sort of manhood or maleness, and then working with that that strength, that like that embodiment in mind. So I guess I think about it in terms of embodiment on some level. Um, you know, to be a man is generally different than it is to be a woman. Um, and so what do you do? Like you could acknowledge what those differences are, and then how do you how do you live virtuously? Um, with that embodiment. Like if most men are, are stronger than most, you know, women and old people, to be a good man is to recognize that that is the case and use it virtuously. And so, yeah, in the piece, I included kind of just a small call out that asked readers to write in and tell me what their ideal of masculinity was or who was it and why. And almost 350 people wrote in uh, which is unusual for a call out. And also unusual was that people really got into it. Like I was receiving multi-paragraph essays on, you know, men like thinking about how they had conceived of masculinity and who they looked up to as a kid and who they looked up to now. And the range of figures that people brought up was wide. <laughs> you know, anyone from Barack Obama to LeBron James to Mr. Rogers, like Mr. Rogers came up a lot. It's like a surprising amount um, to Captain Kirk from Star Trek uh, to Jesus. You know, someone wrote a whole essay about King David as the ideal man. Um, well, it was interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, and what was but what was interesting about the these answers is that it was a whole range of different people um, and different descriptions, but they were a certain set of traits that actually seemed to recur again and again in a lot of responses. Um, and they were things like strength, but not just strength, like using your strength to 
protect other people, especially those who are, you know, weaker than you or defenseless. Um, there was sort of duty and responsibility, like being someone who keeps your word and who works hard, even if you aren't rewarded for it, who, you know, people can trust to get things done. Um, you know, it was leadership. It was good character, actually, not lying and not cheating, um, not being too self-aggrandizing and like letting other people compliment you and not complimenting yourself too much. Um, like self-discipline and self-mastery in, in many cases, like learning a skill. Um, but there were also things like being emotionally sensitive or emotionally awake. And I think this is a lot of people pointed to Fred Rogers as, you know, like many people wouldn't think this besweater, you know, children's character is the ideal man, but he was so empathetic to children. He took care of them and he was a good listener and was respectful to women. Um, and that was that was a description that came up a lot. But actually the King David example, for instance, this person wrote, um, you know, King David, he was a warrior, but he also really loved his best friend and like had close friendships with other people. And yes, he did sleep with his neighbor's wife and then send the guy to be killed in battle, but he felt really bad about it. <laughs> and he repented publicly <laughs> and, you know, like prayed about it and you know, took ownership of his mistake uh, and changed his life after that. And, you know, he was a musician and wrote all of these psalms, um, but he was also like the king of his people and a strong leader. And their their description, like their ideal was, you know, man can be many things at once, but being a leader, but also being able to be sensitive to friendship and poetry and taking responsibility for your wrongs and striving to be a better person is what a good man looks like. And I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting, actually. Um, yeah, but I was, again, I was surprised by, there was like a wide range of people, but there were really specific ideals that came up again and again. I want to ask you a couple of questions in the Jesuit context, especially thinking of this order as being around for almost 500 years and teaching young men for about that entire time. And now also, of course, women at a number of high schools uh, and also colleges and universities, but certainly been like schooling men and forming men for a long time. And there's a famous speech that was given 50 years ago by who was the guy who was the then the head of uh, the Jesuits, the Superior General Pedro Arupe. And from this speech, um, which was called Men for Others, essentially about forming men, quote, who will live not for themselves, but for God, and his Christ, men who cannot even conceive of love of God, which does not include love for the least of their neighbors. Essentially, we need to be calling out and saying we need to make sure our schools are forming men and also now women, but men for others. And that's a line that if you know anyone from a Jesuit high school, especially, they will like quote that line yeah. to you uh, a lot. And so I, I am curious, like if I mean, you talk about like wanting to kind of harness some of these traits in a pro-social way, but wondering like kind of in that that spirit trying to like maybe examples who have um, defended those who are vulnerable, not necessarily through like physical uh, defense, but like 
by kind of speaking up and, and even advocating and, and working for justice, which I know is like a kind of a key element of, of all Jesuit education. And so like if you hear something like, you know, the men for others uh, speech from Pedro Arupe from 50 years ago, does that um, jive for you with some of the, the things you were hearing from people in terms of what a positive vision of masculinity can be? No, absolutely. I mean, I think actually the idea of working for others and not just yourself was one of the overarching traits. Like if you have strength, if you have skills, using them for the betterment of people around you for, yes, protecting and helping the defenseless and, you know, helping to make the world a better place in some way to to be a builder, I guess, um, is a term that came up a couple of times, too. And it's interesting that you you use that quote, because I was also surprised by the number of um, what I would describe as sort of old codes that came up again and again that people referenced that they actually thought still had value. And it was things like that. I mean, the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, um, if you've heard that, came up a lot of times. Um, sort of the Boy Scout code, right? Which is very much about, you know, being thrifty and careful and helping other people. Um, John Cardinal John Henry Newman's definition of a gentleman, um, you know, kind to the weak and makes people around him comfortable uh, came up. Um, so yeah, I think I think that idea of being being a man for others, being a person for others um, really resonated with a lot of readers and definitely came through in the responses. A number of our listeners would be people who are working at Jesuit high schools and colleges and universities uh, around North America who are responsible for forming and shaping the young men today. And a lot of our listeners are, are parents of young men, including myself. Um, so I just, if you could be in a room with a bunch of these, both Jesuits and lay people who are leading these schools, I'm curious what advice you might give to those who are entrusted with their formation. Yes. I mean, again, I think one thing that really stuck out to me and what the experts who I spoke to said too was this lack of role models and like what was neat, what is needed to sort of to help men who are lost, younger men who are lost is for older men who are less lost to actually stick out a hand and help them to notice, you know, when the young men around them are sort of drifting and proactively go after them. Um, so I think there's just a level of attention uh, and willingness to sort of get into it with the guys you know, um, and actually like talk to them and correct them uh, when they're doing the wrong thing or give them instruction on the right thing to do person to person and building relationship. Um, that was the other thing that came through. You know, there isn't necessarily a policy fix for the crisis of men because you can't, you can't like mandate a dad for everyone through policy. Um, it has to be the work of built relationships one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I, I also heard a lot about the importance of kind of male spaces um, and like almost, almost like an, a space for sort of initiation <laughs> in some ways. Like they're, you know, people are born male, um, but become a man by like, achieving something by going after something and like creating spaces for that to happen um, seems really important to that to that formation. Um, and I think I also one of the things that I would suggest is keeping an eye on, you know, what the what I term manfluencers are saying. Um, and again, providing a positive vision that's 
actually a morally positive vision. You know, Andrew Tate talks about, you know, getting women and getting cars and getting money. Um, but I think a, a young guy can watch an Andrew Tate video and take that away, or he can watch an Andrew Tate video and then listen to an actual man he knows talk about the value of committing to something, committing to one person, caring about the world, and the real person can make that appealing to, to him. But I think a lot of, um, I worry that actually a lot of teachers and older adults aren't aware of some of the truly terrible kind of proto-fascist messaging um, that is directed directly towards young men on, on social media, on YouTube, and kind of everywhere they go. Um, and that actually does need to be directly combated. Hmm. When I'm thinking about positive visions of masculinity, especially like in a Jesuit Catholic context, I think about clergy, right? I, I work for the Jesuits. I know a lot of Jesuits who, to me, are like really kind of beautiful examples of a positive masculinity. Uh, and a lot of these Jesuits are have, you know, are mentors of uh, young people in their care. And but like, there's one big difference about at least Catholic <laughs> clergy from some of the guys we've talked about. When when you put that call out for examples, I tweeted uh, LeBron James at you, so I was one of the LeBron oh. James people. <laughs> nice. Uh, so I, but like, um, who has a family and is a father, and fatherhood comes up in the piece uh, and procreating, and certainly celibate men. That is not something that, that they are participating in, right? And so I guess like for you as a Catholic and thinking about uh, some of the priests you've known, like how can a a priest in that very particular vocation, um, in your experience, can model masculinity, even though it looks quite different from LeBron James, uh, from a lot of these other people we've talked about. Yeah, I think that's really that's a really interesting question. But I think there are actually some pretty clear ways. One thing about celibacy um, and about committing to the priesthood or committing to an order is that it is in fact a commitment and a pretty tough commitment. And I think one of the traits that you know came up again and again was sort of self-discipline and self-mastery. And actually just that commitment is such a good example of like discipline that even if a young man like doesn't want to do that himself, you can look at someone who has decided to commit to an order and be like, Wow, respect. That's that's hard. That's a hard thing that you did, um, and doing that well, I think, can be a, a beacon and very honorable. Um, and I mean, uh, you know, priests are also human <laughs> too. Like they're also human men. You can be a priest who's like still very athletic or still like you know good at various skills and like show that um, to the men and young men in your care. If you are the priest of a parish, you know you do have a flock who you are a father to and a leader too. And you can, you know, show yourself to be a good and trustworthy leader who cares about other people. Um, I think it's, I actually think that it's very important to have alternate models of masculinity. I think it's important to note that, you know, there isn't necessarily just one male ideal. Like you can be a good man in many different ways and a priest can show one of several ways uh, to be a man. But I think also one thing um, that was important in all these models of masculinity and what many of these men were looking for was a positive vision of masculinity that was male, right? That wasn't androgynous necessarily, but that admitted to, you know, having this embodied form and like male characteristics and living with those and, you know, honoring those. 
Um, and I think that that's something a priest can do just as well as, a, you know, a lay person. One last question for you uh, before I let you go. I can see your book over your shoulder, which you mentioned, uh, Rethinking Sex. Um, and I'm curious if you were going to, if they're going to commission you to write a book kind of based, expanding on this essay, or if you're going to write a sequel essay, where would you want to go next? What were some of the questions that uh, you were left with that you think could use some, use some even further digging in? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a hard one. I mean, I think a question that I was pushing on both in Rethinking Sex and in this piece about men um, is the question of ideals and ideal forms and the suggestion that in fact like we have ideals and social mores for a reason um, and that sometimes they're actually useful and good. And it's interesting to, I'm interested in sort of figuring out both like why we have, why our, our culture seems very averse to, to acknowledging that. And I mean, there are some very good reasons why too, like, you know, overly strict ideals have been used to stigmatize people, uh, to make people who don't fit the perfect ideal feel really terrible about themselves and to cut them away from community. But what are there virtues in sort of norms and understandings and traditions that we can bring back? And if so, what, what are they? Um, and I, I guess I, I think that there are just still a lot of questions, more questions than one would expect about just what it means to live a good life and be a good person in different aspects of life, whether it's your sexual relationships and romantic relationships, whether it's in your gender and like how you live as, you know, a person of this or the other sex, um, just how to be in the world in a way that's healthy um, and fulfilling. And those are the questions that I'm hoping to pursue in future writing, whether it's about men specifically, maybe it's about women next. I don't even know. Um, but as a, hmm. as a general rule, I think that's, those are the, those are the ideas that I continue to be interested in. Well, Christine Emba, thank you so much for the time and for the great, uh, really fascinating piece. It's, again, so well-written, and we'll make sure, again, folks can – we'll put a link up that people can access even if they don't have uh, a subscription to the post, which uh, don't tell your money bosses <laughs> that. Um, but we will, we will try to give it away to folks, at least through uh, the podcast, uh, and hopefully they can join the conversation. Uh, and, yeah, thank you again for, for all the reflection you have prompted uh, me and friends uh, of, of mine, and uh, best of luck in – whatever big question you ask next. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I guess I'll, I'll put in a plug quickly too. Um, social media is fragmenting, which I actually think is great. <laughs> um, but I'm still on Twitter and Blue Sky and Threads as just Christine Emba. But I'm also starting a substack, christineemba.substack.com, where I will also be posting free links to pieces I write and other content and also thinking aloud about this topic and perhaps the topic of my next book. So you can follow me there too. Awesome. Will do. Thanks so much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, 
Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.